0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate.
1: Indeed, we are, or sometimes not. Who knows? Who cares? Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. And this week, it's a special one of Gone Off Road because I am in conversation with the author, Will Birch, who has a new book titled Cruel To Be Kind, The Life and Music of Nick Lowe. So, I've got that interview that I'll probably break up into two sections, or segments, for your digestion. I know, I like to get biological at these times of day. Um, Yes, because um, it's quite a long interview, and frankly, you can only cope with so much quality chat. So, what I'm going to do is start with your favourite and mine, and then the first part of the interview. This is Nick Lowe, and yes, you've guessed it, Cruel To Be Kind. Go, band that is Nick Lowe with a track titled Cruel to be Kind that came out about a million years ago. Well, 40 is a long time. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show, a special because I'm speaking to the one and only uh, Will Birch, who has a book out titled Cruel to be Kind, the life and music of Nick Lowe. Anyway, look, normally at this stage I do lots of admin, but I'm not going to bother this time. I will a little bit later on in the show, because I just want to get down to quality chat. This is me with Nick, and uh, this is the after a bit of chat about the interest in world that is Skype. You don't need to know about that. Um, I said, yes, I know what I said to him. Um, yes, what he's been doing for the last 12 months. And he chuckled, and he said, 12 months? I don't think so, Sonny. And this was uh, Nick's reply. Nick... Will, sorry, take it away. 12
2: months? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Well, I've known Nick uh, personally for about 45 years and uh, he was in a group called Brinsley Schwartz on the London pub rock circuit of the early 1970s. And I was a big fan of Brinsley Schwartz's music and in particular Nick Lowe's songwriting in that period. And I later had my own group. I was the drummer in a group called Kurzwell Flyers. We uh, made it onto the pub rock circuit ourselves in 1974, which was 45 years ago, unbelievably. Yes. And uh, one night we uh, supported uh, Brinsley Well, We didn't support Brinsley Schwartz. We, we played on a bill with Brinsley Schwartz in London, Which was an honour, really, for me or for us, because all the group were keen on the Brinsleys. And um, the first thing I sort of observed about Nick was in the dressing room between sets. He was um, very a lot lot of there were a lot of you know a lot of people in the dressing room, guys and girls, and a lot of girls seemed to be very attracted to Nick and. Sort of stood around him, like about five girls, all like completely transfixed by his personality. And he had height on his side, and um, he was the singer, I guess, the main, the front man of the sports. And he struck me as a very uh, kind of charismatic person. And then in, in the years that ensued, I would run into him, you know, in the pubs of London or at gigs, as they call them, shows. And um, he helped he, – he, well, he, he wrote a song for my group, The Curstle Flyers, which we recorded on our second album in 1975, I think. The song was called Television. And uh, he sent me a little 7 and a half inch reel reel-to-reel demo which I still have, and, um, you know, we recorded the song. I think it was about the third song he ever had a cover on. Um, he'd done one with Dave Edmonds. Now, he was working a lot with Dave Edmonds at this point. Dave Edmonds come to London from Wales, and within a year or two they would form Rockpile, who you've no doubt heard of. Yeah. Um, um, and I got quite friendly with Nick, and I wrote a song uh, called A1 on the Jukebox, and I made a little home demo of it, and um, I didn't really know what to do with it, but I gave it to Nick, and he gave it to Dave Edmonds, and Dave Edmonds recorded the song uh, on his uh, album in about 1978. So, you know, I got fairly macy with Nick, and um, some years later, I. I'm um, jumping ahead now, but I, I went to work for his management company to work as a sort of, I don't know, tour manager, I guess, with Carleen Carter, who Nick married, had married in 1979. So, And since then, we've, you know, on and off, kept in touch, and I've done quite a few sleeve notes for him, CD reviews, few articles for Mojo, various, you know, features I've written, uh, previous books I've done. So we stayed in touch. so I, I guess he's a friend, you know, yes. um, and I'm a, a huge fan of his music.
1: Yes, because when we sort of look back and we simplify mm. the sort of history of music and, you know, you mm. go from the 60s and quickly breeze through the 70s and mention glam sort of heavy metal. Um, yes, punk and prog we kind of miss those kind of other bands that slightly were there but but sometimes get kind of glossed over and Brinsley's the one and Ducks Deluxe is the other and, and a lot of those bands. Yeah. And also I recently did an interview with Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness who, yeah. as he said, he was too, they were two years too early for the punk movement and also he was way too old. He was something like 25 or 26, so they missed yeah. the boat by two years. So, so there was that whole... Scene that was kind of there and was obviously hugely respected, but slightly didn't, in a lot of cases, quite get there to the the, the kind of the chart band sounds of the top ten as well.
2: Yeah, I I am um, I wrote about uh, the pub rock scene in a book some years ago. I wrote called No Sleep Till Camby Island, the Great Pub Rock Revolution, where I, I traced the history of the London pub rock scene roughly 1972 71 72 through to around 76 when of course it was completely wiped out by punk rock but those early um years on the pub scene gave rise to well of course Nick Lowe uh, Ian Dury with Kilburn on the High Roads and of course the great Dr Feelgood and a few other people Sean Tyler and Ducks Deluxe people you, you just mentioned and I, I used to go to these gigs, you know, and dream of uh, being in a, you know, my own group, um, being on the pub circuit. I helped uh, Dr. Feelgood get their very first London show in 1973. I had a mate who worked for an agency, and uh, we got them on at the Tally Ho. And then when I got the Curzals going the following year, uh, the Feelgoods, or particularly the late Lee Brillo, uh, helped us onto the London pub scene. So it was like a big uh, community. Uh, it was a bit chummy and good, good fun. Yes, and all of those groups were in their own. I mean, the, the musical um, styles were very diverse, ranging from hard edge rhythm and blues of Dr Feelgood to the kind of country rock of Chili Willy and the Red Hot Peppers, the soul music of Ace, and the grab bag um, diversity of Brinsley Schwartz. But everybody was taking it back to the roots. Um, the late Charlie Gillett had a fantastic radio show at the time on BBC Radio London, and he would play soul music, country and western, uh, you know, western swing, and people were, you know, going back to the days of Hank Williams and Louis Jordan and finding out the roots of rock and roll. It was a terrific sort of learning, what they would call today a learning curve, but it was terrific uh, education for us guys at that time. Yeah,
1: and obviously, well, not obvious at all. But there was the sort of then the birth of this kind of stiff records as well, which was in itself another great chapter in in music and the slightly, I suppose, the stepping stone for a lot of bands who sort of got, went on to the the world of punk, as, you know, because they had such an amazing roster, and 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 that was kind of critical, I guess, to a lot of those bands as well to get that uh, platform.
2: Yeah, stiff records really. Came directly out of the punk rock. Uh, sorry, the, sorry. Stiff Records came directly out of the pub rock scene. Um, Stiff Records was founded by Dave Robinson, who had managed Brinsley Schwartz, and Jake Riviera, who had managed Chili Willie and the Red Hot Peppers. So they they obviously bumped into each other in the Ho or the Kensington pub, you know, every Tuesday night or whatever, and. Straggling along behind Jake Riviera was Nick Lowe. Um, Jake had sort of taken it upon himself to become Nick's manager, I guess. Uh, in fact, Jake went on to manage Nick for the next 40 years, but um, they were quite a strong duo. Uh, and Jake and Nick, um, or the way Nick tells it, is around about 75, when after Brinsley Schwartz broke up. Both of them were at a loose end. Both were getting jobs wherever they could. I mean, Jake drove a van for time out and Nick went on the road as tour manager for Grand Parker and the Room. And they were scratching around for a living, uh, but they both believed that there was a, a, a cha- change was in the air, but they couldn't quite put their finger on what form that would take. Now, it transpired that it would be punk rock. And punk rock, of course, musically vastly different from pub rock. Um, Pub rock, horrible term, but we know what we're talking about. Punk rock, of course, Fast and Furious, um, uh, Sex Pistols, Clash Damned, etc. Fantastically exciting. And it gave the scene a damn good shake-up, which was not a bad thing. But a year before that scene broke, and before Malcolm McLaren you know, got the Sex Pistols away... Everybody kind of knew there was a change in the air, but as I say, they couldn't put their finger on. Of course, in New York, things were happening at CBGBs with groups like Television, Paddy Smith, Blondie, Talking Heads, and crucially, the Ramones. And, um, you know, that was a very exciting period. So that all kind of melded together. And really, it was that it was in that atmosphere that Stiff Records was um, put together in 1976. And um, Jake Riviera, you know, got in touch with Dave Robinson. Dave Robinson was managing Graham Parker and the Rumour, a fabulously exciting group. And Nick Lowe was hired to produce their debut album. Um, And I think that was probably the catalyst for the involvement of those three people in the formation of Stiff in 75, 76.
1: Yes, incredibly critical time. And also, I mean, you you have you know, been there at that time
3: no. and sort
1: of been able to see all this develop. I mean, there were a lot of bands, though, because I can remember one of the sort of bands that played with Elvis Costello. I think they were called Clover. But one of those groups that came along and were just about to say, right, this is our time. And again, it was a bit like, oh, I'm really sorry. But again, your timing wasn't quite right. And and punk has happened and no yeah. one wants to hear you anymore. So didn't people like Nick Lowe and, and Graham Parker, did they have kind of was I mean, how did you know, they didn't quite fit into that scene seamlessly, did they? They still sort of sat slightly around it and and on top of it, but not quite part of it. And I just wondered how that sort of would have affected their kind of songwriting and their kind of the creative direction they were about to take.
2: Well, of course, Clover were an American group in California and um, Nick and co had met Clover when Nick and Jake went on tour with Dr. Feelgood. And Dr. Feelgood uh, were assigned in America to... Columbia Records or CBS and um Dr. Feelgood were invited to take part in a in a CBO or Columbia Records um trade uh, event in, in California. So they were flown out there to play at the at the convention where all of the, the um record company people and media would get together. Um, it's like a giant after show, I guess, went on for a few days, much alcohol consumed. And um, after that event in, uh, in San Diego uh, in early 19... I've got my dates right here. If I say 75, some clever person will say 76. But anyway, um, Nick 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 was on that tour as a uh, roadie for Dr. Feelgood. And um, after, after San Diego, they all went north to um, San Francisco and it was there that they met... Uh, Clover or was it in LA can't quite remember anyway they hung out a lot with with Clover and if you listen to Clover's records particularly the lead vocalist Alex Cole uh, you'll hear a lot of Nick Lowe's vocal intonation influence i mean if you look it up on if it's in fact on Spotify there's a song called Mr Moon by Clover and you listen to that and it is Nick Lowe i mean um and Nick obviously credits Alex as being an influence. Um and Dave Robinson, um around the time Stiff was getting together, took it on himself to bring Clover over to England and, and manage them. And he got them a record deal with um oh, Vertigo, I think one of those phonogram labels. And um they they arrived in London. In fact Huey Lewis who yes. later went to, great success I I interviewed Huey for for my Nick Lowe book he said you know the week we touched down at Heathrow the Sex Pistols had just been on the uh, that you know that TV show where they all swore and all the rest of it and Sex Pistols all over the papers and you know here's Clover with their, their long hair and their beads and bells a sort of San Francisco type community band walking into the health hell, you know of punk rock hellfire of punk rock just a very unfortunate time for COVID yes um, it could you know, have been worse um, really yeah that's it and um so in answer to your question I think that Nick uh, and other people were kind of scratching around at that point. In 75 into early 76 what do we do Graham Parker is obviously the new white hope of British rock and roll, great songwriter, fantastic debut album. Um, and then, of course, Elvis Costello or Declan McManus appears on the scene. Now, that's the point at which things, the game changed, I think, uh, early 77 when when Declan came along. Yes. And Jake, Jake Riviera invented Elvis Costello, I mean... And I think Declan was only too pleased to be, uh, you know, pr- uh, inspired and prompted by Jake, who was a very powerful, uh, you know, man- I say manipulator. He was a very powerful influence on people who were kind of on the fence, not knowing which way to jump. And Jake would go, "Put the glasses on, get your hair cut, shave your beard off, do that, and Elvis, and you will be, and you will be called." Elvis Costello, and Declan went, fine. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, that is really when, when it changed, really. I would put that, I would say that moment. And suddenly everybody went, I get it, you know, it was. I get it. The Ramones have made their first great couple of albums. The Feel Goods are still successful. Nick's hooked up with Dave Edmonds. They're talking about forming Rockpile stiff records I mean incredibly exciting period in London at that time
1: yes and then you had other people that I mean there were a few people who just didn't get it though I remember there was a band <laughs> called the Fabulous Poodles who who probably had an amazing sort of repertoire and, and some great ideas but they they didn't have someone who told them to I don't know change it a bit to to sort of um yeah capture some sort of musical zeitgeist because obviously Elvis Costello he did get it and he did look the business and you know Everything everything clicked into place, but I expect he looked a bit old and out of touch with the young kids
2: of the romance well, and sex. People. You you think Elvis looked a bit out of touch, you mean? Yeah, in seventy-seven,
1: seventy-eight he would have, you know I well,
2: don't know. He, he I mean he had the he had the he had the specs, you know, the crucial glasses, eyewear. He had the crucial eyewear and He's quite a tall guy, and he had like, he commanded authority on stage, and he was quite. I think, although I think Elvis has his nerves, you know, before he, I've seen him before he walks on stage, he can get very nervous. As soon as he hits the stage, he's in, he's completely in control, and he owns the room. I think you mentioned the fabulous poodles, and you know, have worked with uh, one guy out of, out of the people that I say they're mates. I mean, I know them. I think the fabulous poodles were just slightly the wrong side of um, taking themselves seriously. They were kind of had a slight comedy aspect to their presentation, and, and in fact, my own group, the Castle Flyers, you know, could have been accused of making people laugh at a time when laughter was <laughs> not happening. Emotion—it <laughs> was suddenly all about anger. Yes. and uh, the funny funny had kind of um, you know died out a bit and the poodles were a bit zany i would say um and and i think it cost them a little bit but on the by the same token look squeeze now what about squeeze they were a group that came up through that period fabulous songwriters obviously chris and glenn um you know some of their lyrics are a little bit funny um i don't know it's a, it's a very it's very strange and of course the other key point was the music press at that time nme melody maker sounds was incredibly influential i mean those papers sold you know six figures every week around the country 100,000 150,000 so unheard of circulation today for what was uh, almost a minority uh, in interest, you know, uh, and um, so the music papers with their very funny writers at the time, Charles Shaw, Murray, Nick Kent, et cetera, they would rip the pee out of a group who, you know, saw themselves as being sort of <laughs> a bit entertaining. It was all about, I don't know, it was an incredibly exciting period. I loved it. It was great.
1: Yes, and obviously, yes, I think, I think there were certain bands who... With, you know, I, th- I always remember Spirit uh, had a sort of lead singer called Randy California, who I think just wasn't going to sort of be part of that sort of punk, post punk period, was he? Because it just didn't have a name called well, Randy California. I,
2: I, could, I, could talk about, I could talk about Spirit all night. I mean, 12 Dreams of Dr. Saldanicus was just a great record. Uh, I loved it. All... See, that's the thing, you know, that I, I used to collect, buy, collect, obtain, acquire records uh, in quite serious quantities in the in the late 60s, early mid-70s through to the early 80s. And I loved all of those, you know, Spirit, you know, Blue Oyster Cult, Commander Cody. It, it didn't stop anywhere. I just loved all that stuff coming out of America. And uh, a lot of people loved it as well because, as I say, the music press was powerful. You also had... Uh, magazines like Zigzag, for example, or in America Rolling Stone, much bigger uh, publication, of course, but it was still um, it was still kind of quite cliquey, um, clicky. um and uh, people were very influenced by reviewers. You know, if an album, I don't know a Linda Ronstadt album got a fantastic review, or Flying Burrito Brothers, everyone went, "Yeah, we've got to get this." Usually on import, you go and spend three or four quid on the album. And but but then when um, seventy six when punk rock hit in seventy six suddenly a lot of people went into denial that they'd ever bought a Eagles LP you know um, mm. suddenly it was all uh, who, who was the Iggy Pop or something yeah
1: right we're going to break it there because I think we need some music and some light entertainment but anyway that's the first part of my interview with Will Birch author of Cruel To Be Kind, The Life and Music of Nick Lone. this has just come out on Constable Publishing and available from all good bookshops. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, we love your messages. Only if they're nice and positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. Um, you can via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just go to at C86 Show. And also all these uh, archives that I've been doing for about four, three years, Have um, you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, and Podbean, the magic podbean. So yes, C86 show. Um every week I do an interview with a indie, mostly an indie band. Um there's a lot of indie bands out there from the 80s. Anyway, I'm gonna play yes, your favourite and mine. You know what I'm gonna play. I'm not even going to introduce it, oh yes I am. This is Elvis. This is what's so funny about peace, love and understanding. In this time, who knows? <laughs>
3: This wicked world Searching for light In the darkness of insanity I ask myself Is all hope lost Is the only
1: I know what you're thinking. You should have played the Whitney Houston track, I Will Always Love You, or even if I was being really smart arse, um, the Dolly Dolly Parton original version, which was written by dear old Dolly, I Will Always Love You. Anyway, from the soundtrack, The Bodyguard. I hope you're following this kind of train of thought. Anyway, this is... Uh, that was Elvis and What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding. This is going to be the second part of my interview with Will Birch, author of that said book that I keep mentioning. Um, and this was the next part where I'd been starting to babble about those 70s rock bands that people loved He was sort of hungover from the 60s. This is it. Anyway, David, take it away. Well, it was the Ramones. But I guess the band that you haven't mentioned that I remember you know, various people who were that generation above me really loved and probably didn't try to admit it in public was the Grateful Dead. And Little Feet, they were the two who were sort of like, you know...
2: Okay, well, Little little Feet, I mean, I kicked myself up the arse every week for not actually going to that famous little Feet gig at the um, Rainbow, I think it was. I think I was on tour, we were on tour at the time, working so i missed that one um I, I i guess little feet probably were the best combo i mean there was the band the band little feet there's a handful of great bands that could really swing that was the key they could swing and old george little feet had a genius songwriter and grateful dead for all of their Self Indulgence with, you know, Long Dark Star, Two Hours or whatever they played it for. Those couple of albums they made in in 70, 70, 71, um, uh, American Beauty and Working Man's Dead, they were very, very influential on the London pub rock musicians. I mean, Nick Lowe uh, will tell you all about the first time he heard um, Working Man's Dead and he'll tell you that first time he heard Little Feet, uh, you know, one of their early albums. Very, very, very influential. We, yes. loved, we loved all that stuff. Loved it.
1: Absolutely. So, then, going back to Nick Lowe, he had yeah. that, that moment, which because you can clear this up, because what's so funny about Peace, Love, and Understanding that he wrote? Um, I read somewhere or heard that he'd made a million pounds. On it when it was put in a film, but he watched the film but never heard the song. But it was on that soundtrack. Is this? Can you clear that up for us?
2: Yeah. Well, the the headline, you know, was that Nick made a million dollars overnight. Um, I, I've never I never saw the check, so I can't vouch for the number. But a big lump of money. I think it may have been a bit less than that. But with residual royalties over the first couple of years, he probably did make seven figures. Uh that song, What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding, uh, was uh, written by Nick in the dying days of Brinsley Schwartz, 1974, and they put it on their final studio album, or, the, or at least the final album that was ever released, or uh, officially um, Uh, New Favourites of Brinsley Schwartz, produced by Dave Edmonds. So Dave Edmonds took hold of the the Brinsleys, who up until that point had made records that were deliberately lo-fi. You know, Nick says a guitar solo could never be thin enough. Uh, They deliberately wouldn't use echo or whatever, reverb on the vocal. Everything had to be flat and dry and probably a bit boring. But the songs were, well, many of the songs were very good and some of the performances were great. But the records sound not too good. And Dave Edmonds said, right, guys, this is the way we're going to do it. You know, I'm going to go in the studio with you. Rockfield, I think, in Wales, where Edmonds was a a sort of a hermit who lived, almost lived at Rockfield, produced his own records. He had lots of hits at that time, I Hear You Knocking, etc." And Edmund says, this is the way you do it. If you want to be the band, for example, when the band record a song like Rag Mama Rag, they don't go in like you guys and just press the tape recorder and what will be will be. They actually, or they and their producer slash engineer actually work to make it sound the way they want it to sound. In other words, they're not scared of putting an echo effect on something even though the music is designed to sound very authentic and outback, it is actually quite contrived. And Nick was very impressed by Dave Edmund's studio talents, um, talks about it a lot in, in this book I've written. And um, and they became big buddies, obviously, and went on to become Rockpile. But um, in answer, what was your question? We were talking about... The, um, um,
1: the, the, the kind of this, well, actually, as part of it was about the, the fact that it was in this soundtrack, which sold 44. Oh, yeah. OK,
2: so they recorded, yes, yeah, sorry, sorry there. Uh, sorry, David. Yeah, so they recorded What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding. And a guy in America who, who heard this song and loved it probably heard the Elvis Costello version, which was a lot angrier. And a lot more in your face, 78, 77, 78, was Curtis Stigers, who is now of course an acclaimed uh, jazz-inclined vocalist and musician. Curtis Stigers was playing in a bar band at the time. What's the funny was in his set list, and um, he he signed a record deal, I think, with Arista Records, and uh, he he was on tour opening for. Uh, Elton John or Eric Clapton, he told me, uh, somewhere like, you know, Madison Square Garden or L.A. Hollywood Bowl, a huge venue. Um, When the Bodyguard film was being put together and edited and Clive Davis, who was the head of Aristotle at the time, famous uh, record executive, uh, was doing the musical supervision on this movie which would become The Bodyguard with Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner. And they were looking for songs for for the soundtrack for the album and Clive um, Davis just happened to hear Curtis doing What's So Funny in his set and said, what's that song? And um, Curtis said, well, that's a song called What's So Funny about his Southern understanding written by Englishman Nick Lowe. And Clive Davies said, That's the song, that's the missing song we need for the movie. And uh, it was included in the soundtrack. Now, you'd have to uh, listen extremely, <laughs> you'd have to strain your ear to actually hear the song in the, in the film. In fact, eventually the it actually was in the film the soundtrack, but it did make the soundtrack album. And the Bodyguard soundtrack album went on to become not only the biggest selling soundtrack album of all time you know out you know completely outselling my fair lady or you know any of these great uh, soundtrack albums of the, the previous era um it also became probably the biggest selling album of all time i mean they claim 45 million units now on paper that's outsold thriller now i don't know if these figures are true but So, suddenly, this soundtrack album, Whitney Houston, becomes huge. And Nick's got one of 20, I think, or 18 tracks on the album. So, you divide, you know, well, you can do the the math, they say. Uh, And suddenly, you know, Q2, he gets the big check, yeah, for a lot of dosh, yeah.
1: Carl, that must have been a weird moment when he just went, I can't believe
2: it. Well, Yeah. I mean, it's actually a crucial moment in his life, not not just so he can buy his mates dinner anymore or get some nice shoes. Um, it helped to... Um, I'm being a bit facetious there, but it helped to uh, fund his musical endeavours because he he, by now, we're 19... I don't know, what was that, 91 or something, early 90s, He's by now fed up with being signed to major labels. He's fed up with trying to compete uh, with fantastic record production to get on the radio or get on MTV. And he's got this vision in his head of, I'm going to take my music now to a new place where rock and rollers, or hardly any rock and rollers have been before. Uh, We're going to go in the studio and I'm going to sing this song into a microphone, and it's gonna be recorded. Now that might sound obvious, but the difference is, you see, the way rock and roll records, not rock and roll records, the way rock music was made through the 70s and the 80s, would that you go, five musicians would go into a studio, you'd spend three days getting the drum sound, and then what we're doing, for so we're doing this song, blah, 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 and the engineer would hit record, and the band would play, and they were only really concerned with capturing the drums and maybe the bass. So they want the foundation. And then for the next three weeks, they would overlay it, building on that foundation. Worked fantastically for Foreigner, you know. Great. Yes. But Nick didn't want to work that way. Well. Nick wanted to do it completely in reverse. So he wanted to get a great vocal live to take one take, maybe two if he caught. Cop- Club and they had to edit it together. But basically the vocal, the tape was the vocal. And his his boys, his drummer, his pianist, his guitarist had to sit behind that. They were, were like the way they made records in the fifties, you know, live to tape. And the most important thing on the record was the vocal. And it took Nick quite a while to suss out how to make these records and that money He earned from the bodyguards helped to fund this studio. I won't say experimentation, but studio. uh, You know, taking things back to basics, and they and they did would spend like two or three years putting an album together, and it was all about you know being live in the room, the atmosphere, and the authenticity of the performance. So that's what that money paid for.
1: Blimey, that is that is quite some story, isn't it? And that's quite some sort of moment of. I mean, it's amazing how that break, you know, because it it just, it's not luck, but, you know, at the same time, it's by chance, isn't it? You know, that, you know, someone's...
2: Yeah, I I mean, I do, you know, we all know loads of really good musicians and songwriters who have made, written, you know, three or four really good songs or made two or three really good records who, who just don't get the breaks. I mean, I'm personally of the opinion you kind of make your own breaks in a way but you do need you need to be in the right room at the right time when the light's shining in the right direction and it doesn't happen for everybody it happened for nick in that case and i wonder what would be even more interesting is say that hadn't have happened let's just say the bodyguard was never made could have might never have hit the screen or there might not have been a big soundtrack album. And all the major record labels, no, we don't want that Nick Lowe. He's a lazy old bugger, you know, he never wants to do any promotion, so we'll drop him. And Nick could have ended up like a journeyman musician. There's plenty of them on the circuit. Fabulous. You go and see them, you know, all the time. But they're 73 or whatever they are now, they came up through peace, you know, the peace and love in the sixties, seventies. Mainly, probably in folk-based or country-based or jazz. Great musicians; they earn a bit of a living on the live circuit, but they're scratching. And there's thousands of them. And Nick would probably have ended up like one of those guys.
1: Well, interestingly, I suppose, because I don't know if you saw this other film, it featured. It was an American film, and it um, had Graham Parker appear as Graham Parker, is this kind of person just playing small gigs sure. in a band? And,
2: sure. I, want and... To be, I had great honour. Of going to the uh, uh the uh Hollywood premiere of that movie
1: now we're forty or something isn't it yeah
2: now're now uh, for, now I'm forty, now I'm 40. and I suppose like, it, it yeah. and it
1: did it did depict somebody like yeah. graham who you know as you said that first album was a classic and everything, yeah. but then over the years has kind of probably realise that he's just got to pick his guitar up, go to a bar, play, get yeah. a bit of money, yeah. and then sort of continue to do that for the rest of his life. And as a lot of people, depend on a bit of the merchandising to pay for the petrol yeah. to get back. So, um, yeah. you know... You, you, can't,
2: you, can't, you can't stream a T-shirt. Is... <laughs> um, um, Graham, uh, yeah, as I say, Graham um, played himself in that movie. And what was really good about that movie... Was that he reformed the Rumour? All the original musicians, including Brentley Schwartz on guitar, of the group Brindley Schwartz, of course, Martin Bellman, and all the other all the other guys, Bob Hendrix on piano, who was in Brentley Schwartz with Nick, and they played themselves in that movie. Uh, and it was kind of um, it wasn't it wasn't a movie about uh, rock and roll music. It was a movie about you know, relationships and growing up and. Now you know, being 40 years old and family and stuff, but uh, Graham got quite a lot of good little cameos in that film, you know. And um, as I say, I, you know, I went to the premiere, it was wonderful. And Gra- then Graham played that night at the, the following night, sorry, at the Roxy uh, in Club in LA. It's quite funny because his support. Graham Paganer and Mr. Support Act was um, the chap out of Fleetwood Mac, uh, the bloke they sacked for recently. Oh, Lindsay some, uh, Buckingham. Lindsay yes. Buckingham, yeah. The loudest, the loudest acoustic guitar I've ever heard in my life in a 500-capacity club. But Graham, that couple of years, three or four years for Graham with the reform Room was fantastic. But Graham is one of those guys, and Costello can do it, Nick can do it. They can get up on their own with an acoustic guitar in a room with maybe 200 people who are quite happy to pay 50 bucks to see them and buy the T-shirt. And they've got such a phenomenal back catalogue of songs, 50, 100 good songs they can draw on. They'll play 25 songs in an hour and 20 minutes. And it's fabulous. I mean, Graham is terrific solo, I'm sure Costello would be, Nick Canby, people like Richard Thompson, some of these really, really good people can do that. And there will always, in any any town in the world where people are walking upright and they've got a couple of bars, you will find 200 people who will pay to see these sort of musical legends. But I guess for some of them it gets a bit tough when they get a little bit older. It's yes. gone the way of jazz, don't you think? I think it's a bit like the jazz scene.
1: Well, all, all yeah, the bar's not too bad, but I did hear some sort of slightly scary stories because there's a lot of cruise ships now that do these kind of um, kind yeah. of blues rock prog, even prog rock cruise ships. And um, yeah. I know recently there was one, I think, this summer, and they had uh, Pete Frampton who was playing for the last time because he's got some problem with his hand so he can't he won't be able to play guitar for much longer but then I was listening to that um podcast as I mentioned that one the rocks back pages and someone said they are a bit weird those ships because it does attract a certain type of stalker who will try and find the member of the band to get their autograph at any cost (laughs) um apparently it's a bit of a strange scene so um yes that yeah
2: I've known one or two uh, musicians who have done those gigs for um, what's the big cruise line? Things uh, with the sea, uh, big cruise line, Cunard. You know they do those um, transatlantic crossings. I don't know what is it, five, six nights or something. And yes. you're gone. There'll be there'll be Roger Daltrey doing a doing a, a, a sort of a, a speech, or are you doing it talking about something or other, and then there'll be a magician who shows you the tricks of his trade, and there'll be a a real sort of underground musician (laughs) teaching people how to write songs. And people, I don't know what it costs, thousands of bucks to go on these uh, trips. Yeah, and I heard the other day some of the people are on them. I mean, it's a bit like in America, they have these railroad um, tours across America, which are usually country artists do. You know, and people pay a lot of money to be on a train for 10 nights and sit next to, I don't know, Somebody really pretty famous country singer That's
1: uh, right. dried,
2: up, dried up on names, but you know the kind of guy I mean. Guy Clark, for example, the late Guy Clark. He would do those um, railroad trips. A friend of mine goes on them quite frequently. He'd say, oh, you know, well, the other night we had Rodney Crowell, and I'm waiting for him to say Jackson Brown was on the train. You know, it's like big names, uh, and and yes, it's the same with the cruise ships. Yes. Yeah, so, I guess there are super fans who've got a bit of cash, and yes. maybe do get to rub shoulders with, you know, the guys from Florida at the bar. I don't know. Probably.
1: <laughs> yes. Pro- so, look, just last last sort of question on on doing a book about somebody you know. Did you have to? Was there anything that you kind of thought that should go in there, but I'm not quite sure if I can do that because it's going to be a bit tricky
2: um is this do you mean when you're writing a book? well wait, 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 yes when you, when you did a book for... on
1: somebody you know and like so much yeah. and, and obviously well,
2: my, yeah my my biggest problem see when i i did a biography my previous book was a biography of Ian Dury, and um i loved Ian. and in the in the final years of his life he kindly gave me several interviews around his house and that formed the backbone of my book. By the time I started writing that book, Ian had died. So it puts you in a a different situation now with Nick, who thankfully hasn't died, is uh, still with us, um, and is kind of a friend. I, I would hope you know I know him quite well. Um, um, I think I was worried that people would say it was a bit sycophantic in as much as I'm, you know, a numero uno fan of his songs. I think he's the greatest. He would be embarrassed by hearing me say that, but sod it. You know, he is great. And I just reached back, well, when well, I don't care, you know, because I want to just tell it like it is in my take on Nick. For the people who want to read about it, and I hopefully I've got it about right. Um Funny enough, enough, what kind of happens, or what happened in this book? You know, the, the, you know, if you've got a, an agent, who, who a literary agent, who sh- shops your uh, book around, uh, they also is it is it an authorised biography? Authorised? Is it authorised? And well, as much as the fact I've had twenty-three lunches with the guy, and he's told me you know, these inside leg measurement, I guess you could say it's authorised. Um, But uh, I didn't want that on the front because when I see the authorised biography, I always think it's probably been slightly sanitised, you know. Um, So uh, did it give me a problem? Um, When I was... um, when I, after I'd done a lot of research and started writing it, I would feed a couple of sample chapters to, to Nick, <laughs> hoping that he would read them and call me up and say, Well, that bit where you, and of course, you know, he, he, I, 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 I think he wouldn't mind me saying he didn't actually. <laughs> I think he just put them in the corner. <laughs> and he used to, he says to interviewers, even now, he said, Oh, I was kind of hoping Will wouldn't finish the book. You know, that's that's his shtick. That's what he says. But I did finish the book, and uh, when it when I uh, got a publishing uh, publisher for the book, and we're putting it together, like the first draft, I said to Nick, "Look, you really got to read some of this because here you are. You know, smoking reefer's and going to bed with film stars, and you know, we have to be sure you're happy for this to be in it." And he did. Bless him. He did get involved, and he did ask for some things to be taken out. But by the same token, he insisted that some things remained in. So I think what we did end up with was kind of a cross collaboration. In that, you know, we were both happy, but both happy with it. But it is a biography. It's not an autobiography, and I don't think Nick would ever will ever write. He's autobiography, although I'd love him to, we would love him to, but I kind of think that ain't going to happen. So um, so in your case, you're writing what, is it a musician you're writing about when you say you're writing a book?
1: No, I'm not writing a book.
2: Oh, I thought you said I'm writing a book about somebody you might know.
1: No, no, I was quite, no. I was saying you writing about somebody you know so well.
2: Know. <laughs> no, no. Oh, That edit that out. I will edit that out. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it is a bit tricky. It is. It it was a bit tricky with Nick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were. He wanted. He wanted me to take a few things out. There weren't because there were. There was a sort of legal point on it, or they. I think he was a little bit embarrassed by it. One or two of the stories he had told me. I mean, <laughs> you know, we'd sit down and I would ask him a question and he would talk for 25 minutes. I'd record it, transcribe it, edit it, pull most of it in. Uh, it's him talking. Um, but I think he thought maybe he'd been slightly um, so over, over, over um, enthusiastic about some of his stories. Um, but no. It's it's all been great, you know, he's, he's done very well. And uh, week after next, he and I are doing an event in New York City, actually. Um, the book's come out in America, and we're doing an event at Strand Bookstore, and uh, he very kindly has agreed to take part. We've got a moderator, and we're going to sit with this person and probably be asked some questions. And so that's on the 10th of September in, uh, in Manhattan. So
1: Fantastic.
2: Yeah. It's going to be great. You know, the publishers always. The funny thing about what, you know, the thing about, I'm not being morbid, but when you write a song about someone who's died, they can't be with you at the book. Sign. <laughs> with this book on Nick, so many people, uh, you know, bookstores or, and I'm, you know, extremely grateful for the attention, don't get me wrong, but, oh, can you bring Nick, you know, can Nick come along? And I'm going, all right. I'm not his agent. I don't know. I, I can't possibly speak for him. I phoned him up. I said, look, I'm getting all these requests. Would you do this? And he went, no. And then I said, would you do that? And he went, maybe. And then I said to him, if I could set something up in the States, like a little um, uh, book event, would you? And he went, yep. And he was there, you know. So, luckily, it's just before he goes on his next uh, tour in a couple of weeks' time over Yes.
1: There. God, you'll get a lot of super fans there, won't you?
2: <laughs> well, yeah, it's quite a small... It's at the Strand Bookstore, which is the old... What they call it? The old book room or something. It holds about, I guess, 200 people. Yeah. It's a ticket event, but you get it's not expensive. I mean, you buy a ticket and you get the book, and then, of course, I'll sit down at the table and hopefully sign a few, you know, a few dozen um so that's quite good and uh yeah it's been i've i've loved doing it but it is you said earlier something about did you say something about spend 12 months writing or yes and yeah these, these 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 kinds of books do take me uh seven or eight years to write wow from the from the not not all day every day clearly i have to do other stuff but uh i i I go out, I make a list of people I want to interview, usually 50, 60 people. It takes you sometimes three or four months to track someone down, and they've got to agree, then you've got to meet them, or sometimes it's over the phone or over Skype. Then you've got to record it, then you've got to transcribe it, then you've got to edit it. And you can only really do about, I don't know, one a month on average. Um and then you start thinking about it and you think about, you know, affects your thought process, affects affect the way the book shapes up. Then you start talking to publishers and then they want their input. It, it does take a long time. I mean, they're not overnight, they're not knockoffs. you know. They're, 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 I don't claim to be a particularly good writer, but I do think my books are quite well-researched, you know. So, yes. And they, they take a long time.
1: They do do sound like a very... It's basically your decade gone, isn't it, really?
2: Yeah, jury was 10 years. Um, You know, he died in 2000. Be the 20th anniversary of his death. It's March, can't believe it. He died, and then a few people... Because I'd interviewed him for Mojo and stuff and blah, blah, blah. Uh, A few people, oh, would you do a book on Ian? Sat down with the family. They were very helpful... Uh, various things. We discussed that one on for about a year. Yeah, that was ten. That was ten years from time Ian died to publication. It was exactly ten years. This one slightly less. This is more like eight years. The next book. Yeah.
1: And that really is the last part of my interview with Will Birch. A big thank you for giving me the time for that interview. And as I said, his new book, *Cruel to Be Kind: The Life*. And music of Nick Lowe is available from all good bookshops, probably online as well. Constable Publishing. Um, This has been David Eastall. This has been the C86 Show. And this is going to be another track by the one, the only Nick Lowe. And the track titled I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass. Have a great week.